So let's look today at Luke 15, beginning in verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, Praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In 1932, in Holland, a man was born who became very famous in this country, really around the world. In 64 years of life, he wrote 40 books. He taught at some of the finest institutions in this country, the Menninger Clinic, Notre Dame University, Yale University, Harvard University. But I think it's interesting, near the end of his life, the last 10 years of his life, he bid academia goodbye, he stopped writing a book every six months, and he went and lived in Toronto, Canada in a mental hospital with people who were mentally handicapped and mentally challenged. And Henry Nouwen writes about it this way, the change of career paths forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that wants to do things, the self that desires to say things, the self that seeks to fix things and to be recognized. And it forced me to reclaim my unadorned self, my self that is completely vulnerable that's open to receiving and giving love without any personal accomplishment. And then he adds this, I'm telling you all of this because I am deeply convinced that the Christian leaders of tomorrow will be those who, be complete, who become completely irrelevant, who stand in the world with nothing to offer but their vulnerable selves, after all, isn't that the way Jesus came? Isn't that the way Jesus rode? Isn't that the way Jesus died in all of his love and power? Think about this. Nearly two years before the cross, Jesus takes his disciples somewhere where he never takes them before or since. To a small town named after Caesar 
It's called Caesarea Philippi. And they are 30 miles north of any town that is recorded in the New Testament where Jesus takes them. He asks them one question. They're there just a few minutes apparently. He asks them one question. Who do men say that I am? And then interestingly, in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, he stands before the Roman governor by the name of Pilate, and Pilate basically asks him the same question. Are you a king? And remember what Jesus says in response to Pilate. He doesn't answer his question. Instead, he asks another question. Do you say this on your own, or has someone told you this? You see, ladies and gentlemen, identity is powerfully important to Jesus. That's why after the resurrection, in Luke 14, on the road to Emmaus, when those two disciples are are bewildered and they leave Jerusalem and head toward Emmaus, Jesus shows up. And at first he's not recognized, and we're going to look at that next Sunday. But when he becomes recognized, the Bible says Jesus opens the word to them, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, and shows them and tells them everything the Scripture says about his own identity. You say, boy, I'd love to have been that part of that Bible study. Well, I can tell you one thing. One of the texts Jesus uses, and I think he underlined, was the text we just read. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem that day, the first day of the Passover feast, is recorded in all four Gospels. Do you know how few teachings or experiences of Jesus are recorded in all four Gospels? And yet this one is. Why? Because it is the clearest, most profound recitation or description of Jesus' identity and the identity of everyone he transforms that there is in the Scripture. In other words, when you begin to analyze Luke's account of Jesus on Palm Sunday, you'll not only know more about Jesus and his power, you will know the kind of power that he distributes to every believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's dig in. First of all, notice the pronouncement. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now it's interesting to me that in Matthew chapter 12, the Bible says that Jesus finds out that the religious leaders want to arrest him. They want to take him, arrest him, and put him on trial. And the Bible says, Matthew tells us, Jesus withdrew from them. In John chapter 6, we read that the crowd wants to come and make Jesus their king. You know what Jesus does? The same thing. He withdraws from them. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And you know what Jesus tells them? Don't tell anyone what you saw. And yet here, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus does the opposite. He's no longer withdrawing. He's no longer keeping it secret. In fact, he rides into Jerusalem on the first day of a week-long Passover festival, the greatest feast of the Jews. Why? Because he determines to reveal himself to them as king. 
And lest you miss that, notice what Luke says. And, he, and when he, Jesus, had said these things. What things? You know what Luke puts in his gospel right before Palm Sunday? The parable of the talents. Where the master calls his slaves or servants to him and he distributes to them certain parts of his property because he's going on a long journey. And when the master comes back, Luke says, Jesus said, he called his servants together to give an account. And normally that's as far as we go in the parable, but that's not as far as Luke goes. Luke says not only does he call his servants before him to give an account, but he calls all of his enemies before him. Those who refuse his, his leadership or his reign in their lives and listen to what the master says. Bring them before me and slaughter them before me. Now we're talking power. After Jesus said these things about the master who's in charge, he rides into the city to claim his kingship and to demonstrate his power. Second, notice the plan. When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Now it's interesting to me that they go to get a colt. Normally kings rode on horses. It's said that Augustus Caesar, who was Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth, had 1,000 horses all white. Why? Because a horse symbolized power and might, and white-colored horses symbolized victory. Kings always rode horses unless they wanted to ride in peace. Notice here, Jesus doesn't call his disciples to get a horse. He calls them to get a colt. Now, a horse guy was in the last service, and he said, you know, there's another miracle here Palm Sunday, and that is that this colt could be ridden. It had never been ridden, never been broken, but there's no indication of bucking or any th such thing. You know, when I was in seminary, I heard a guy preach a sermon on this text. And he said, this is proof positive that this is a fable. This couldn't have happened. You know why he said it couldn't have happened? Because nobody would lend their unridden colt to a stranger. And when I heard it, I instantly thought of that great Presbyterian evangelist, Billy Sunday, who preached at the early part of the 20th century, who said this, a sinner can repent, but stupid is forever. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is a famous rabbi. He had many followers and hangers-on. For Jesus to borrow a burrow is not a stretch at all. Think of the things Jesus borrowed in his ministry. I mean, Jesus was always born. He borrowed boats to preach from them. He borrowed a gold coin out of a fish. He borrowed five loaves and two fish. He borrowed an upper room. He borrowed a shroud. He even borrowed a, bar, a, a, an unused tomb. Jesus is borrowing things right and left in his three-year ministry. In fact, there's only one thing Jesus never borrowed but bought, and that's you. I mean, think of that. 
If you know Christ, you're the only thing Jesus ever purchased. And he purchased you in his blood. So Luke tells us, he comes to the place that the prophet Zechariah, prophesying 500 years before Jesus, said that the Messiah would come, Mount Olivet. And there he would stand and he would judge the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, the first time the Messiah came there was not to judge. It was to save. It wasn't in war. It was in peace. It wasn't on a white steed. That comes later. It was on a colt of a donkey on which no one had ever ridden. Third, notice the participation. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. I always wondered why he sent disciples to get the colt. I mean, why didn't he just go get it himself? Why didn't he send word for the owner to bring the colt? I mean, why engage these disciples? The answer is plain. So that they might participate in all that Jesus was doing that day. You see, they understood the crime that he was about to commit. They understood the strength of the enemy. They understood the price of protest. These Galilean disciples knew as they grew up, they would walk streets and roadways where they would see men hanging on crosses. The Romans did it regularly. For what reason? Not only to subjugate the people, but to remind them that the price of protest And sedition is death on a cross. The disciples would have known what Jesus was doing. So why does he make them co-conspirators? Why does he implicate them in the crime? Why get them involved in the plan? So that they might learn that what he is going to do in Jerusalem is exactly what he calls every transformed life to do. David says it this way in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus to Jesus, that's not theory. To Jesus, those aren't just words. They are practical, existential reality. He is trusting in the Lord his God and he's telling his disciples and showing them that they must do likewise. And fourth, notice the portrait. As Jesus was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now notice there's no Hosanna here. Luke doesn't include the word Hosanna, which means save us now. The word Hosanna literally means save us now from our enemies. It was a war cry. It was the plea of oppressed people to get the oppressors off their back. But you see, Luke isn't interested so much in the crowd's need Rather, he's focused on the need that Jesus has. And so he says, as he's riding down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise 
God in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen Jesus do. I want you to notice something. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's calling them out. He's giving them an opportunity to demonstrate to themselves and to Him who they believe He is. He's calling them to declare their understanding of His identity. They are dead wrong about it, but Jesus is making them declare it. It shouldn't surprise us the crowd is wrong. In the Bible, almost every crowd is wrong. A few weeks ago, we were studying woman at the well in John 4, remember? And we noted there that Jesus forgives that woman, not only her sin that's visible, but the sin under the sin. Her problem is not simply immorality. Her problem is identity. When he says to her, go call your husband, she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you know, you're right. You've had five of them. The guy you're living with now is not your husband. Go get him. Her main problem is her identity. She believes that her worth comes from what others think of her. And Jesus is freeing her from this. How do we know she's free? Because she leaves him and goes into town and says, Come see the man who's told me everything about me. Now she had a lot to hide. And yet she's willing to go into town and say, Hey, I'm an open book. Come meet this man. Come see this guy. Jesus frees her. And in that message, we mention that this is exactly what Jesus promises every Christian as a church. In Matthew 16, when his identity is proclaimed, in Matthew 18, he says the same thing. I give you the kingdoms, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we use this as an illustration of how Jesus looses. Jesus loosed her from her bondage of self-identity. After that message, one, I think 11 o'clock, guy came up and said, Is that really for real? I'm thinking, I lie, but try not to do it on my feet in front of folks. Is that really what loosing means? I say, absolutely, it's all about forgiveness. Jesus gives us the power to free people from their sin, to forgive, and that looses people. And so he got it, and then he said, well, what's binding? I said, well, wait a couple weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, this is binding. What Jesus is doing by riding that colt is to say, who am I? And he is binding their conscience. He is binding them in their sin because, ladies and gentlemen, they are willing to praise a king who comes to rule, but not a king who comes to be crucified. They're willing to praise a pretentious king, not a weeping king. They're willing to embrace a king that conforms to their image of what a king should be, not embrace Jesus for who he is. They are ready to praise God for what they believe is God's relevant self when in reality Jesus comes into Jerusalem to show them His unadorned self. 
And then fifth, notice the product. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I always wondered as a kid and even as an adult, is is Jesus uh, pulling our legs here? Is Jesus speaking in some oriental hyperbole when he tells the Pharisees, you know, if my disciples were quiet, the very stones would cry out? Can you imagine a stone crying? You say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't it true that a big stone called a rock followed Israel in the wilderness? And whether Moses spoke to it or struck it, water would come out of a rock? I suppose if a water water can come from a rock, so can praise. Ladies and gentlemen, a rock can praise God better and quicker than us because a rock has no will. I remember when Pat Robertson ran for president. Remember that? 1988, you guys that were born. (laughs) A reporter asked Robertson, because he had read his book, he said, do you believe that you, because you, you and others prayed a hurricane away from the coast of Virginia, are you trying to tell us that you could control Congress? Robertson, oh no. A hurricane has no will. Congress has 435 wills. Jesus says, the rocks would cry out. See, a rock doesn't have any self-interest. Rock doesn't wear masks. A rock is a rock. A rock lets nothing get in the way. Stones can cry out to the glory of God better than we. I think the writer of the Hebrews knew that. That's why he makes this statement that Jerry read earlier. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. What joy? For the joy set before him, what joy? To go into the city to be brutalized? To be stripped of your clothing and hung between two thieves? What joy is there in that? To be forsaken by friends, to be battered and bloodied, to be put to shame. I can understand the shame part, but where's the joy in that? Where is this joy for the joy that was set before him? Now, there are a lot of people that will answer that question. The joy of sitting on the right hand of the Father. Yeah, but I don't think that's the joy the writer of the Hebrews is talking about. A couple weeks ago, I got a friend's book. His name's Steve Brown. And in it, he tells a story that I think answers the question, what is that joy? The joy Jesus knows before the cross and the joy we can know after it. He said, one day I was uh, speaking to a gathering, a convention of my denomination. And when I was preaching or speaking to them, I said some controversial things. If you know anything about Steve Brown, he majors in controversy. (laughs) You know why? Because he preaches the gospel. And so after he's finished, a guy comes up in a three-piece suit, and he says, Dr. Brown, what you said grieved my heart today. Brown looked at him and said, 
grieved your heart. We're in one of the smallest denominations in America, and I'm a peon. If your heart's going to be grieved, why don't you get grieved about something important? The guy's shocked and said, wait a minute. You don't care what a, what a fellow pastor has to say? Brown smiles and says, no, not really. But I'll tell you what, if you want to be honest... You don't want to play games. I'm willing to listen to you for a few minutes. And the guy points at him and says, I think you're rude, arrogant, and pride-filled. And Brown said instantly, almost without thinking, I said, Bingo! If you knew me five years ago, you would really think I was proud and arrogant and rude. And if you really knew me, you'd think I was worse than that. Steve said they talked together for over an hour. He said the guy even loosened his tie. I mean, it was honest. No masks. Vulnerable. But Steve said, the thing that I'll never get away from is how I felt when I said bingo. I had the sense of freedom, the sense of joy, the sense of grace. I generally would have tried to beat him up with words, and preachers are pretty good at that. I would have belittled him and talked about his judgmental spirit, but instead I said, You've read me well. You know what I experienced in that one word, bingo? A sense of what I was meant to be, free and powerful. He said, in fact, it's become, it was such a wonderful feeling, I've decided to do that more often. And so I call it the bingo retort. Somebody says to me, you're wrong. Bingo! I've been wrong more than 50% of the time. You're selfish. Bingo. My mother used to tell me that. My wife tells me all the time. You're not living up to your potential. Bingo. And would you mind if I didn't live up to my potential until I'm glorified? You're not fit to be a Christian. Bingo. That's why Jesus died for me. I can't even believe you're a, you're a preacher. You're not spiritual enough. Bingo! I've been telling the Lord that every day since He called me to preach. If it weren't for the grace of God, you wouldn't be worth jack. Bingo! It's all Him. It's nothing about me. I'm a son of the Lord God Almighty. And I have an elder brother who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, Henry now in his right. Those who are used most by God are those who stake their claim, not in their relevant self, but their unadorned self, their vulnerable self, their honest self, their self that is weak. For it's in that kind of self-concept 
that kind of self-concept alone that you can become free and that God can use you to free others who desperately want to get away from their mask. You see, that was the joy that was set before Jesus. The joy to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, but to be unadorned, to be naked before them, Ladies and gentlemen, that's the way you and I have become free in Christ. That's why Paul says it this way to the Corinthians. My power is made perfect in my weakness. Have you learned that yet? Have you learned that your power and the power of Palm Sunday and the power of a transformed life doesn't come from horses and chariots and ego and self-aggrandizement? It doesn't come from the relevant self that you have. The self that most people see. The power of Palm Sunday and the transformed life is in the power of the unadorned self. The self that is vulnerable and honest. The self that is able to say, look to Jesus and not to me. After all, isn't that exactly why Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, without me, without me, you can do nothing. To which every transformed heart and mouth ought to say to that, bingo! Without Jesus, we aren't worth anything. With Him, we're worth everything. Think about that. Amen.